So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Yes, we're on a roll. Uh, we are overcoming all kinds of uh, challenges because we're not in the same part of the country this month. We've, yeah, <laughs> that's a, that seems to be the thing this month. Uh, yeah. You're you're out in the um, Colorado Hills Mountains, and yeah. I'm in Nashville. And and our guest today is coming in from. Uh, zooming in from California. So we're kind of making a big triangle here. Uh, it's a it's a cool thing. You know, and I was just in a Samson meeting minutes before we started this recording session. And uh, it was great. I mean, so I was talking to guys from all over Canada and the U.S. Uh, having honest and intimate conversations through yeah. the marvels of modern technology. It's amazing. Yeah, it is. It, it really is. And uh, I have more people that are experiencing some great recovery opportunities through virtual, um, what I'd call virtual relationships. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. In a positive way. In a positive <laughs> way. Yeah. Yeah. This, this real connectedness. You know, it's interesting, you know, sociologists have, I've seen more and more articles lately on sociological studies that show how despite the growth of social media, mm -hmm. uh, Americans or Westerners are more isolated than ever. Mm -hmm. Somehow, uh, you know, I, you know, I've got 5,000 close personal friends on Facebook, but, yeah. <laughs> but all my interactions with that social media platform, uh, is I'm trying to impress an audience. I'm trying to get likes, mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm showing my very best side most of the time. Yeah. And other people are showing me the best of theirs. Uh, so kind of like the operational principle of this social media, let's talk Facebook, for instance, is, I don't know, envy. Gosh, yeah. I wish, I want to provoke envy in my followers uh, mm -hmm. so that they can, you know, just tell me how wonderful my life is. But, yeah. to, but that requires a certain amount of dishonesty, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It yeah. does for me, sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I'm not putting my worst day on Facebook. I'm putting right. my, you know, my best day on yeah. Facebook. And for those, uh, you know, for adolescents who are trying to come to a sense of themselves and, you know, mm. form an identity. Yeah. Uh, on all of the insecurity that comes just as part of the package during those years. Yeah. Social media just adds a ton of pressure. I think it's, you know. I think it's a major factor behind the rise in teenage suicide and teenage addiction. Yeah. 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 But if on the other hand, I can use this same technology, if there's a place for me to, to, to connect safely and mm -hmm. have an actual honest conversation mm -hmm. uh, to, 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 to share uh, everything that's going on in my life, my fears as well as my triumphs. Yeah. Well, that's a whole different thing. Right. And right. I can expand my community and my support system. Right. And, you know, one of the quickest routes to depression is comparative thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and if we're constantly, uh, you know, um, looking at other people and their experiences or their, what we perceive to be their real lives mm -hmm. um, and comparing them to ours, I think it's just a, an exercise in, um, in uh, potential depression and sure down a downhill spiral. Right. Right. Comparing my insides to other people's outsides. That's what we say. Yeah. Yeah. But if I can be in a meeting somewhere in a physical meeting, in the mm -hmm. church basement somewhere uh, in a 12 step meeting uh, 
or in a virtual meeting, or mm -hmm. if I can meet with my life coach or therapist and actually share my real self. Yeah. 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 It's interesting because I have uh, a number of clients, Nate, as you know, living in the greater Nashville area that mm -hmm. work in entertainment yeah. and part of the entertainment, um, um, uh, shtick is that you have to get on a bus or a plane and you have to travel and you have to travel at um, ungodly hours. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and I have people that are in uh, recovery that are finding apps um, that can, um, I had a guy going through a really tough time, you know, he's on a tour bus, people are drinking like fish and he goes back to his bunk and closes the curtain on the bunk. And he's just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel completely alone and alienated. And he got on his phone and he went on, um, on an app, uh, yep. where he has uh, an account and he just said, is anybody out there? It's 2 AM. I'm going down the road of, yeah. you know, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and he ended up in a conversation with a person he's never met and never talked to since. Mm -hmm. And it saved him an hour that took him to a place where he could sleep and he could, um, wake up yeah. and, you know, face the next day. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it, it's just, uh, it's an amazing tool. Yeah. Just, yeah. you know, technology and being able to reach out. Hey, I love the fact that, uh, our listeners do write to us and oh, sometimes yeah. sometimes they suggest guests yeah uh, and we can thank a listener for today's guest you're sure going to love you are going to love this conversation stay tuned for our talk with dr sunny Sonny we'll be back in a minute here on the positive sobriety podcast Okay, well, welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast, and our very special guest this week is Dr. Sonny Whedon, a clinical and forensic psychologist, psychiatrist. I'm not sure exactly, Sonny. What, uh, all I know is you got a lot of letters after your name and, and a big <laughs> presence in a big practice on the West Coast. Well, I'm a psychologist. I'm clinical and forensic psychologist. Okay, okay. With offices in Northern and Southern California that you manage to, to work out of every week? That's correct. So I'm in Northern California. I'm in Novato in Marin County, about 20 miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm -hmm. And in Southern California, I'm in my hometown of Newport Beach, oh, in okay. Orange County. Oh, <laughs> wonderful. Nice. Oh, yeah. Two beautiful spots. Two beautiful spots. I'm a lucky woman. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wonder, we always like our listeners to get to know our guests personally, a little bit of their backstory. Would you mind sharing for us uh, briefly, how it is that you wound up in this field? What, what got you to uh, the work you do now? Well, I was originally trained as a school teacher. I was a public school teacher in Los Angeles and then in Northern California. Really? I was. I taught kindergarten and first grade for about 10 years. Wow. Um, I wanted to be an elementary school counselor. And in my district in Southern California, there was such a thing. Every school had one. So that was my original training or the idea of it was to be an elementary school counselor. Mm -hmm. And when I moved to Northern California, there was no such thing. And a lovely woman, Dr. Ann Leibowitz, who I believe was one of the first women licensed in California as a psychologist, came to visit me about a child she was seeing in therapy. I told her I had a master's in counseling psychology, and she said, why don't you come to work for me? Oh. So I went to work for Dr. Ann, and uh, she was an amazing mentor. I'm not a recovering person. Um, the alcoholism and drug addiction, thankfully, has not touched my family in any, any way that I'm aware of. Mm. Um, and so you might wonder, how did I get into the addiction field, which is, I think, an yeah. important story. Well, Dr. Ann said, you should, you should get your PhD. You need to have a PhD and be a psychologist. And so I needed a pre-doc internship. And down the road from where I was practicing, um, was Petaluma Valley Hospital, and they had just opened 18 beds of drug and alcohol treatment within this larger community hospital. And Anne said, why don't you go over there and see if um, they would take you on as an intern, because they have this new program. So I went over there, and I spoke to their uh, director, their clinical director, Marianne Tessier, and she said, well, 
um, can you can you do testing? And I said, yes, I can do testing. She said, can you give an MMPI? Yes. Can you give a Rorschach? Yes. Can you give a WAIS? Mm-hmm. Yes. Would you be willing to test every person who comes through our program to determine whether our program is appropriate for them? Now think of that. What an idea, right? <laughs> this is ni- okay, this is 1985. Wow. So I said, of course, I'd be happy to do that. So she said, well, I have to ask my um, supervisor, Lee Sparling, if I can hire you. And I said, my goodness, Marion, isn't that interesting? In 1964, I graduated from high school with Lee Sparling, and her dad gave me my first job when I was 12 years old on Bobble <laughs> Island. I think, would, I think Lee will probably say yes, and she did. Yeah. So it really, um, it was a time which is hard to imagine now when most therapists would not take alcoholics or addicts as patients. They were considered to be untreatable. Mm. And so um, I had this internship. I learned so much about recovery. I had come out of a master's program that was completely atheistic, and we were not allowed to talk about God or spiritual issues, which seemed odd to me. Mm. Um, But when I started this internship, there was a lot of talk about higher power and um, spiritual awakening, et cetera, that I just absolutely loved. And I thought, oh, this is the work I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I also um, was seeing people get well. People were getting well in our program. My name went around in AA and NA and recovering circles, and pretty soon my office was filled with recovering people or people who wanted to be in recovery and had heard that I would take them as patients. Right about the same time, um, Vietnam veterans were falling apart, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. most of the ones, at least the ones I saw, had issues with addiction. There was nothing written, almost nothing written about trauma at that time. The VA had a very skinny little book about the difference between World War II Korean vets and Vietnam veterans. Mm-hmm. So I read that little book and combined it with the training I was getting in addiction treatment and sort of made it up as I went along, this trauma treatment. Mm. And then my internship said, well, would you do aftercare for our patients, anybody out of the hospital 90 days or more? And I said, okay, show me the curriculum. They said, oh, no curriculum, you make it up. (laughs) So my first night, (laughs) my first night I had 40 people in my group. And um, so I would tell you that that I learned so much in that internship and by just working with people over the years and it became my great love. I learned to do group therapy. Mm-hmm. And at one point in time, I had six weekly therapy groups. And then I got kind of tired. <laughs> yeah. so, so now, I, now I only have three. I, I condensed uh. down. Um, we started with uh, my clinical director, Mary, and I started with a women's group for adult children of alcoholics. And then that became two groups. And then we could see that there were many women who wanted to be in a group that did not come from alcoholism, but came from some other kind of low-functioning family. Mm-hmm. So we had three groups, and then there were men that wanted to be in our group. So then it just, it just grew. Um, oh, wow. I, I find that uh, we're lacking community. We're, I don't know how it is where you are, but in California, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of community. Um, neighborhoods and churches and synagogues used to serve that purpose. In California, people don't go to church much. Mm-hmm. And everybody's, the neighborhoods are rather empty during the day. So people come and stay in my groups for long periods of time. I have people that have been with me for 30, 35 years wow. that wow. are certainly not in any kind of acute crisis, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but they want an opportunity to have intimacy in their lives with people that they, they trust. They can air whatever's going on in their lives and their psyche and their personal or spiritual lives and rely on that, you know, as a source of character development. Mm -hmm. So that's how I came to the field. And um, I've had a lot of mentors and inspirers since then. And I would say Dr. Rand was the first. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. That is really fascinating, Sonny. And I love that you have seen kind of the evolution of recovery treatment. Yes. Um, You know, from when people were considered not treatable or... um, yeah, mm-hmm. whatever label we would have slapped on them at the time. Mm-hmm. But you've, you've watched this evolve and, and you've watched uh, trauma uh, become introduced into the work and sound like you were kind of on the forefront of that as well. Where do you see it going? Well, where do I see it going? That's a great question. I think there's more and more emphasis on um, wellness, overall mm-hmm. wellness. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and as well as uh, neurofunction, brain function. Yes. And I'm a, I'm a lucky person. I'll talk about this perhaps a little later in our discussion, but I'm lucky to be working with a neuroengineer so that we're actually able to engineer the brain and stop the obsessive and the compulsive and the depressive and anxious aspects mm -hmm. that are so frequently present with addiction. Now, so do you I do that with neurofeedback or what type of? No, no, I don't do it with neurofeedback. Neurofeedback is very good for symptom reduction. Mm -hmm. But we are really not about symptom reduction. We are about really engineering the brain in a way so that there, it's not about symptom reduction. It's actually about repair, cognitive restoration. Right. Okay. Yeah. Great. And so I think the wellness aspect is very important. I don't. I imagine many people have been thinking about this for a while. Certainly, the um, Red Road to Wellbriety movement among Native American groups were mm -hmm. sort of a forerunner of that, thinking about wellbriety as opposed mm -hmm. to simple sobriety. Yes. So yeah. I like that idea, and it's out of that idea that my workbook, Eight Ways to Wellbeing for Recovering People, came about. Yeah, tell us about Eight Ways to Wellbeing. It's a really wonderful story, and I'm excited to be telling you. So I had a wonderful mentor. I mentioned to you that I had several, Angelus Arian. Dr. Arian was a cultural anthropologist, and I, was, I studied with her for many years until her death. And at one point, she said to me, Sonny, I want you to meet Dr. Roger Walsh at University of California at Irvine. And I've read Roger's books, Essential Spirituality, and he's written prolifically. He's a psychiatrist and a psychologist and a full professor. And I thought, well, that's nice, but I, I, and I'm happy to meet him, but why am I meeting? And she said, oh, you're going to work with Roger. And I thought, you know, Roger's an academic, and mm -hmm. I'm a clinician. I can't imagine how I'm going to work with Roger, but okay, I'll meet him. Mm -hmm. And Roger at that time was raising money for his Eight Ways to Wellbeing, which he had hoped would be a PBS special. It takes millions of dollars, and they never quite raised that money. And so that was that. And then I was invited to be a speaker. Um, His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, is very interested in combining Western mental health treatment along with Eastern uh, Tibetan medicine and having, having you know, um, cross-cultural cross experiences. And I was invited to be a speaker mm -hmm. at the Tibetan Medical Society's, uh, it's called Mensi Kong. Mm. Uh, conference in Dharamsala, India. When you go to there to be a speaker, you don't choose your own topic. They choose a topic for you. And my topic that I was invited to speak on, let's see if I can say it, was um, remedies for disturbing factors in body, mind, life. Wow. Remedies <laughs> for disturbing factors in body, mind, life. And I thought, wow. oh my Lord, what am I going to talk about? And then I remembered Roger's work, Eight Ways to Wellbeing, and I called him and went and met with him and said, you know, I've had this invitation and I'd like to present your work. And he said, it's yours. Take it. Go present it. Take my video off my website. See what you can do with it. So I developed a PowerPoint presentation in his video and I showed that to an international audience. It's important because Western psychology is culture bound and it doesn't necessarily work cross-culturally. So mm. I really needed to have something that was going to be relevant cross-culturally and wellness-oriented because they were asking for remedies, right? Mm -hmm. So I presented it to this international audience, and they loved it. They loved it. I had, they asked great questions. And so, you know, flying home from India is a really long trip. I think I was on and off airplanes for about close to 30 hours wow. to get home. And on the way home, I was thinking, you know, this is really wonderful material, and it needs to be operationalized. It's one thing to just hear it. It's another thing to have the information in front of you and to have it operationalized so that you can actually work with it and incorporate it into your own life. And I thought, although Roger wrote it for the general public, I'm going to write it since so much of my practice is recovering people. I'm going to write it for the recovering community. Mm -hmm. And so that's how Eight Ways to Wellbeing came about. I went to see Roger again and I said, I'd really like to write this workbook. And he said, I'll write the forward. You, it's yours. You take it and go for wow. it. So Eight Ways to Wellbeing for Recovering People was published um, in mid-2019, and it will be followed by Eight Ways to Wellbeing for Vitality, which will be for the general public, and then one for adolescents in treatment, which I don't have a title for yet, but it's in the works. Wow. Wow. That's how it happened. Isn't that quite a story? <laughs> that is. That's <laughs> yeah. amazing. Yeah. And how so, generous of him to... Um, 
you know, just kind of release his work uh, into your care. Absolutely. And you know, Roger is a great proponent of therapeutic lifestyle change. He calls them TLCs. And that's what Eight Ways is all about. Eight, eight aspects of um, therapeutic lifestyle, lifestyle actually, mm -hmm. that will optimize mental health. So if you want better mental health in recovery or in life, you do these eight things and you will have better mental health. It will support whatever else you are doing in your mm -hmm. recovery. Uh, it does not, certainly it does not take the place of therapy. You know, it, it doesn't, but mm -hmm. it helps you, um, first of all, know the research. Mm -hmm. Each chapter is set up so that first, here's the reasons why you're going to do this particular thing. It's what the research says. Mm -hmm. And then here's some suggestions that I have that you can do to incorporate this into your life. And now what are your ideas? You know, what, mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you think you can do? And then lots of charts and places to write so that people can track their own progress. Um, it's a rolling curriculum. So it's being used in several treatment organizations. And, um, you know, in treatment organizations, groups, people come and go in and out as they graduate and leave. And then new people come in. So it's mm -hmm. a rolling curriculum. People can start anywhere. If you're in a group, and you're working on exercise, let's say, and new people can come and they can just pick up right there. Mm -hmm. um, or it can be done individually. You know, you can do it yourself, all by yourself. I had a woman contact me recently and say, you know, I've been working with the same sponsee for about 10 years, and we've gone through those, those 12 steps about a bazillion times, and I'd like to introduce this. We're going to do it together as the next piece of my sponsorship with this sponsee. So it's mm. nice to have a buddy to do it with, you oh, know, nice. to be accountable to and share ideas with. Wow. So uh, you've just mentioned one of the eight ways, mm -hmm. which is exercise. Yes. Okay. Well, it was a huge revelation to me in recovery that there was actually a connection between uh, what I, how I was thinking and behaving and physical exercise and it would really boost my recovery. If I would go to the gym, uh, I don't know whether you want to expand a little more on exercise and the research there. And I also love for you to just give us kind of a quick tour of, of all eight ways. What are the things that, yes. uh, yeah, that we can do? Let me start with the tour first. Okay. So here are the eight ways and they're in no particular order and there's no one that's more important than the others. All right. Mm -hmm. And I would also give a disclaimer. The one thing that I've talked about in the workbook, but it's not one of the eight ways is sleep. And sleep, of course, is very important. Yes. Mm. So, but among the ones that are here in this workbook, and again, they're therapeutic lifestyle change, TLCs, to optimize mental health. So exercise, nutrition. There's more and more research about proper nutrition and how it affects mental health in general, brain function. Um, spirituality, a spiritual practice, which is so much part of uh, tw any 12-step program, but is essential for mental health. Now, would you like me to elaborate on each of these as I go along or come back to it? Um, if you wouldn't mind, uh, elaborate as you go. That okay, would help me. I'll do that. Mm -hmm. So let me back up. I did talk about exercise. There's lots of research that says ex exercise is essential for brain health. It lifts mood. It reduces anxiety. It staves off uh, cognitive decline. Mm -hmm. um, so exercise is really important. What is the other one I said next? I said nutrition. Mm -hmm. There's more and more evidence. I'm reading it in the newspaper and in magazine articles all the time about the microbiome, the, the um, health of the gut, uh, mm -hmm. and in terms of nutrition, feeding yeah. the brain, as well as feeding our, our body. But if we're talking about mental health, we're really talking about feeding the brain. Mm -hmm. So eliminating fast food, eliminating sugar to the best of our ability, which is very difficult because any processed food practically has sugar in it. Mm -hmm. um, being, being aware of learning how to read labels and see what's actually in the food that we're having. Eating organic as much as possible to avoid pesticides. Um, pesticides, our body cannot get rid of them. So they get stored, and the more we store up pesticide, the more pesticide we have, and it begins to affect our brain function. Mm. So um, relaxation. Uh, Roger, in his research, did not specify mindfulness. He just said, you need to have time every day that you devote to just relaxation. Mm. But in my workbook, I did focus on mindfulness, 
and um, wrote a bit about how to do it, how to slow down, how to quiet the mind so that uh, memory can be consolidated so that our whole body can relax. The relaxation is really important. Um, recreation. What do you do for fun? And this is a big one for recovering people because so often people come into treatment and what they've done for fun is go to the bar and drink with their buddies mm -hmm. or use drugs in some form, you know, the, the so-called partying. Mm -hmm. uh, so what are we going to do that's really fun? And if you don't know, how are we going to experiment and find things that, that make you laugh? Laughter is great medicine, you know. Mm -hmm. um, the more we can laugh, the better off we are and we can turn some of the Something I think that recovering people often are very good at is turning um, things that were actually quite tragic into something that's humorous, being able to shift the energy of it. So laughter and, and recreation are really important. Relationship. Um, in Roger's research, he wasn't talking about one-on-one -on -one relationship as in romantic relationships in particular. He was talking mm -hmm. about relationships in general. What we know is that isolation... Um, uh, is a bad thing, yeah. not, not just yeah. for recovering people, but for all of us. So the emphasis on creating more relationship, more people around us, having a net friends and supporters. And if we're in a one-on-one -on -one relationship, a marriage or a partnership of some kind, to really educate ourselves more about, about you know, the art and craft of relationship. So I encourage people, just say, just say hi to folks on the sidewalk as you pass them, mm -hmm. or talk to somebody in line at the Safeway. Um, have more human connection. The human connection is very healing. Mm -hmm. Another one is giving back. What is it you do for other people that you don't get paid for? It's mm. really, uh, and that's another thing that is emphasized in 12-step programs. Sure, it's really right. important for mental health. It builds self-esteem. Let's me know I have something that I can offer to you or to the community that helps out. And, um, you know, we have the joy of, of, of others, people's gratitude and our own feelings of um, goodwill and so forth that come from giving back, from volunteering mm -hmm. and uh, finding ways to be resources for other people. Time and nature. Nature mm -hmm. is very healing. And I'm quite concerned. I'm a grandmother. I'm concerned. My grandchildren are um, nature deprived because most of our children are not spending much time in nature the way I did as a kid out running around in the fields and mm -hmm. you know uh, playing and climbing trees and all of that our kids are indoors doing homework and working on the computer and playing on their um, their smartphones yeah. so time in nature has been proven 90 minutes walking in nature in a forest the Japanese call it forest bathing absolutely will lower heart rate, will lift mood and reduce anxiety. But I think also at this very critical time uh, in our world where we are, we are very, very challenged from an ecological standpoint, mm. being outdoors reminds us we're a part of nature. Mm -hmm. We are a part of nature. As nature goes, so do we. Yeah. So it's uh, not only good for our brain and our body, but it's good for the planet. So what have I not talked about here is spirituality I touched on. The research says, um, interestingly, that people who attend a religious service of some sort once a week live seven years longer than the average. Really? Interesting, yeah. So I wonder why is that? Well, again, the research says that so long as our spiritual practice, it certainly does not have to be a religion, um, emphasizes kindness, compassion, uh, forgiveness, those kinds of attributes, Mm -hmm. um, it will serve us and it will increase our, our um, mental health, improve our mental health. We don't want hellfire and damnation, mm -hmm. um, which tends to interfere. But I think a spiritual practice is something people draw comfort from. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something to lean on in times of need. It also produces gratitude, typically. People are more um, connected to their hearts and their gratitude for their circumstances if they have a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. so I, I think I hit them all. I think that's all. Yeah. Right. Did you, uh, Sonny, in your own life and work, as you as you began to study these other things, did you find your spiritual um, uh, self uh, evolve from a more traditional place into maybe a broader 
um, spiritual understanding of some kind, or is that a too personal question to talk about? No, it's not too personal to talk about. Um, well, I'll tell you as my, my background is, I'm a lifelong Presbyterian, okay. but in the most liberal sense of the word, you know, so I was uh -huh. a, as a child and I still belong to the Sausalito Presbyterian Church. But um, I would say that my spiritual understanding is widely expanded so i've been in the i've been in hindu ashrams in india um one of my closest friends is a tibetan buddhist monk mm -hmm. comes and stays with me and i help to support his orphanage in northern india mm. and i had a long um uh association i would say or apprenticeship with a navajo medicine man albert sombrero who is now deceased Mm. And that was for many, many years and um, a Peruvian shamanic training. So I'm wide open. I, I, yeah. spoke, <laughs> I spoke recently at um, a bat mitzvah and I gave the opening prayers. So oh, nice. I, I, think, I think it's really just our own search for the divine, whatever that means to us mm -hmm. and for some greater meaning. Yeah. I, I read a, a quote recently that said, where there is no meaning, people will opt for pleasure. Oh, wow. Isn't yeah. that good? Where yeah, there great. is no meaning, people will yeah. opt for pleasure. So I think um, meaning is very, very important. And I think if that takes the form of traditional religion that is positive and um, life-affirming, well, great. And mm -hmm. if it's something else, so I just say it, it needs to be definable. Yeah. Uh, tell me what your spiritual practice is and how you, how you actually do it. And... Mm -hmm. um, then then it becomes understandable to you as well as to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sonny, uh, we humans, of course, thrive on stories. Uh, yes. We love stories. I wonder, without betraying any confidence, but whether you could uh, uh, tell us a story where one of these practices is proven to be pivotal or beneficial uh, in the life of one of the people you work with. Sure. That's a great question. Well. Many, uh, quite a few years ago, I took my clients uh, twice a year, once every six months, I would open it. I don't mean I took all of them, but I would, I would take them, um, those who wanted to, to a, I would call it a spiritual resort. I don't know that anybody else would call it that. Mm -hmm. Mira, Miraval in Arizona, which was connected to Sierra Tucson Hospital. Okay, it was, it was the wellness aspect. And um, that's where I met Albert Sombrero, the, uh, my, my Navajo friend. And so I would design a retreat, and we would be there for um, four days, three nights. So most of it was outdoors. Uh, we would hike in the desert. Um, and one night, it was evening, and we had decided to have a fire ceremony outdoors in the kiva. So we were sitting there, and we had music, and we had drumming, and but we're outdoors, we're under the stars. And there were some little um, like low lights close to the ground so that you, know, you weren't in complete darkness, it would have been mm -hmm. dangerous. And, and all of a sudden, a hummingbird flew, way, these were way down low to the ground, past that light. And one of my um, clients, who has really, really struggled in recovery over the years, said, oh, Oh my God, did you see that? Did you see that? It was a hummingbird. Hummingbirds don't fly at night. It was a hummingbird. Did you see it? So that was one, all right? It was so meaningful to him that he felt it was a spiritual experience for him. Yeah. Somebody yeah. else mm -hmm. might have said, oh, a hummingbird. But for this particular man, it was important. I have another one that I'd like to share. I had a client in one of my groups for many years who was a Vietnam vet. Um, lots and lots and lots of trauma. And he said, I, I don't believe in God. That's just a lot of baloney. I, I, I don't even want to talk about it. So don't talk to me about it. So of course I never did. Mm -hmm. he, I just let that be. He was a construction worker and he had driven out to a construction site early because he liked to get there early and sit in his pickup truck and drink coffee. And he came back to the group and he said, now I've had a spiritual experience. I was sitting in my truck drinking coffee and just waiting, you know, for the jobs to start. And a mountain lion walked past my car. And it was mm. so beautiful. It was so beautiful. I knew I had seen God. Mm. Wow. So I think, I think, 
you know, in those, in those moments that really can't be planned very well, you can set a stage the way I did at Mirabel, mm -hmm. but who knows what's going to happen from there. One time I had Albert come to California and I did a big sweat lodge for, for any of my patients who wanted to come. And we came out of the lodge. It was very early in the morning, little fog. And all of a sudden the whole hillside behind us was covered with sheep. Mm. And we hadn't seen these sheep ahead of time. They had mm -hmm. arrived sometime. Mm -hmm. And people were so taken with this, the beauty of this green hill just covered with beautiful sheep. Wow. So that's what I can tell you. Um, about several experiences I've had with people and being very touched by the natural world in ways that they hadn't quite appreciated before. Yeah, wow. yeah. Hmm. Sunny, do you work with process uh, addictions as well as substance use issues and things hmm. like that, sex, uh, unwanted sexual compulsivities and all of that? I do. I'm a certified sex addiction therapist and I've I've been a CSAT for many years now. Okay, wow. And of course, I've worked with codependency. I, I don't terribly like that term, but it's, it, it yeah. describes the situation. Yes, uh -huh. I do. I do. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think, I think actually in this day and age that we're living in, all of us have to look at what, what are our um, habits, let's just call them habits, mm -hmm. that are not serving. Mm -hmm. And what do I need to do to intervene on those habits, whatever they happen to be? Uh, that are in need of intervention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you find, Sonny, that uh, at the beginning of the uh, addiction story for uh, anybody who shows up, whether mm -hmm. it's a substance addiction or a process addiction, uh, is there usually, or is there always, I don't know, a trauma at the beginning of the story? You know, there's a lot of emphasis on that at the moment. It, it's a controversial issue. Mm -hmm. I think it depends. I, I think the word trauma is perhaps overused. Mm -hmm. I really do. This is a, a conversation I have with the neuroengineer I work with because he's very concerned that, you know, all of a sudden we've all been traumatized. Mm -hmm. Rather than saying we've all been challenged, certainly there are things in every person's life, I don't care who they are, that have been uh, painful, disappointing, yeah. humiliating, um, uh, harmful. Mm -hmm. but, but certainly, it, it depends on what you mean by trauma, you know? And what I consider traumatic may be very different than what you consider traumatic. So I think it's important to really think about resilience. Mm -hmm. What we want is resilience. So I, want, I wanted, my, my, my boys are adults now, I wanted my children to be resilient. So I didn't worry so much when they had failure because I thought, you know, failure is important. We learn from it. Mm -hmm. uh, we learn to be resourceful and try something different. We learn to sort of pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and say, well, that wasn't very much fun, but I now know what failure feels like and mm -hmm. I can manage it. So yes, I certainly think many people, um, who have issues of addiction have trauma in their past. But isn't it interesting? I helped to support an orphanage in India of 28 children, um, some of whom are now adults, but I've known them since they were children. Only six of them are boys. Um, all of those girls would have been married off by the time they were 14, except they got to this particular uh, mm -hmm. place. That's another story for another day. But you know, there's no addiction. Mm -hmm. nobody's got addiction there why is it they've all been traumatized talk about trauma they've been mm -hmm. traumatized mm -hmm. um, but there's no addiction so I think we have to look a little deeper than than um, trauma and say well yes there's been trauma for sure but I I really think there's more to it I think that I said earlier, you know, when, when there's no meaning, people will opt for pleasure. I, mm -hmm. But I think, again, that's just one aspect. I think um, I know the, the girls at the orphanage and the boys as well have great purpose and great meaning in their lives. They have a sense of purpose and uh, what they're trying to accomplish for the world around them and the community. Mm -hmm. And I think the last thing on their mind is, you know, where's the next party? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, they have a sense of belonging, you know, they have a family uh, together, 
and a very strong spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think for me anyway, being raised in the, um, the spiritual community I was raised in really made a huge difference in my life. I had, I had all kinds of mentors around me, people who seemed to care about me and had some sort of a moral compass. Yeah. Um, and you can argue about, well, there was hypocrisy and blah, blah, blah. Well, there's, that's human nature. Mm-hmm. Those things mm-hmm. are going to exist wherever we are. And that doesn't mean there's not support and goodness that can come from um, various institutions. We look yes. for them. So that's my long answer to your short question about trauma. I don't think every addict or every alcoholic has trauma in their history. And certainly not the kind of trauma that combat veterans have. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more. I'm quite intrigued by your use of the term neuroengineering. I've never heard it before. Well, I hadn't either. And um, I, I think the best thing for me to do is tell it to you in the form of a story, if that's okay. Sure. I, um, I had sent a young man um, who came to, my, to me. He was a college student from a very nice family. No trauma that I could detect or that he could report. And he was a heroin addict and had to drop out of college. So I sent him to treatment, very fine treatment program. And as so often happened, he used the day after he got out. Mm -hmm. So I sent him to another treatment program in Los Angeles because I didn't know what else to do. He had, he had crippling anxiety, absolutely crippling anxiety. Mm. And um, some oddities of thought that I thought, you know, this kid is bright and, attractive from a nice family. I don't really know quite what's going on. When I have somebody that I send to inpatient treatment, I try to visit them if I can. Mm. I had gone to visit him and he said to me, you know, Sonny, they have this brain computer interface program here and I, I don't crave heroin anymore and my anxiety is way down. I'm not very anxious and I'm not depressed. I feel really good. And the scientist who developed this is here today, and you should go and meet him. Well, it's interesting because I had already heard about this in some very vague ways. I had a patient referred to me from Southern California who had told me about it. But I didn't really understand. Mm. So I went and got the scientist's card. He was giving a lecture, so I couldn't really talk to him. And then I made arrangements to meet with him the next time he was in California. He's in Arizona. And when I met with him, you know, I took my, I took my uh, yellow legal notebook so I could take notes like crazy. I took notes like crazy. But I really, I'm not an engineer. I'm a psychologist. And I did not understand a lot of what he was saying. Now, parallel to that, I had written a little book called Many Blessings, A Tapestry of Accomplished African American Women. And in the course of writing that book, I interviewed 30 amazing, very high level uh, women from all walks of life. One of whom, Dr. Yvonne Cagle, is an astronaut at NASA and a retired full colonel in the Air Force. And Yvonne and I had become friends, and she had asked if I would help her form a consortium of scientists and researchers to make recommendations for mental health protocols, behavioral health protocols for the astronauts going to Mars in 2030 or thereabouts, which was a very, I I thought, there's no way I can do that. But she said, Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people will put this together. And of course, NASA has their own in-house people, but they can always use suggestions from the outside. So I called Yvonne um, and I said, Yvonne, this man says that he can engineer the brain. And this sounds wild and impossible to me. What do you think? And she said, well, who is it that says that he can do this? And I said, his name is Dr. Curtis Cripe. And she said, oh my gosh, Sonny. Curtis Kripe, I love Curtis Kripe. I worked with him at NASA. He came out of Jet Propulsion Laboratories. If this man says he can do it, he can do it. Go get him for our consortium. So I called him up and I said, Dr. Kripe, we would like to ask you to be in our consortium. It's uh, uh, mentored by Dr. Yvonne Cagle at NASA, blah, 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 blah. And he said, Dr. Whedon, in exchange for you bringing me onto this consortium, I will teach you everything I know about engineering the brain. I've always wanted to go back to NASA and work with the astronauts, and you've given me that opportunity. So I've been working with the Dr. Kripe for about six years now, and it's quite a protocol, um, and we treat addiction, anxiety, depression, PTSD, compulsive behaviors of all kinds, um, 
I'm going to tell you something very important about addiction treatment that I've learned as a result of doing this protocol. The first part is called a neurocodex, and it is a very fine neuropsychological evaluation, including an EEG, so that the, the evaluation takes place with an EEG cap on the patient, mm -hmm. collecting all the data uh, mm -hmm. of what's going on. And we test over 300 domains of the brain. Now, what was going on with my client that I told you about, that I don't think anybody would have ever known, is he had undiagnosed concussion. And that undiagnosed oh, wow. concussion was causing profound anxiety, profound depression. And that man, that young man was never going to get well, I don't think, unless that was corrected and treated. Mm -hmm. So as a little aside, he's applying to PhD programs now. Wow. Um, wow. So it starts with this evaluation, and out of that emanates a very detailed report telling you exactly what's going on in the brain. What I find with most of my clients who have addiction, even in the past, they may be in recovery, but having some difficulties, is they have very poor information retention. So now you think about that. If I'm giving you a fabulous lecture, or I'm engaging you in what I think is fabulous therapy, but five minutes after you're out the door of my office, you can't remember a thing I said, mm -hmm. what was really the point? Right. So one of the first things we do with what we call neurocoaching, out of that neurocodex comes a prescription for very specific brain exercises that you are going to do, wearing some little um, sensors so we can keep track of what you're, how you're doing. You're going to do your exercises three times a week. They are specific to you. So if the three of us all had evaluations, probably all of our exercises would be different because we have different brains and different issues to be repaired. Mm -hmm. People do them three times a week for 50 minutes with one of my technicians. Um, they're done by Skype. So I have clients all over doing cognitive mm -hmm. restoration. Wow. And at the end of two months, you have a re a reevaluation to determine progress and determine if you need to do more or you're done or whatever. Mm -hmm. So um, I just think it's so important to consider that one of the reasons people are not getting well in treatment, I mean, you know, we have a terrible failure rate, mm -hmm. is uh, that their brain will not take in and utilize the new information. And so when I have my patients do this program, almost always they do not relapse. They, 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 the brain is balanced and well. And I say to them, now, this is no guarantee that you're never going to drink or use again. Mm -hmm. but, it, but it will be a choice at that point rather than compulsive behavior. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's an important distinction because mm -hmm. you all know, you know, addiction becomes so compulsive that it's not under conscious control. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you can repair that, person really then is at choice. As mm -hmm. a, and they can make the choice, well, if I'm going to drink, I can drink if I want to. Well, mm -hmm. yes, you can. Uh, it won't go well, <laughs> but, it's a, but it's a choice rather right. than I have to, and I can't right. stop it. Right, yeah. then a broken belief. Yeah, a broken belief. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sonny, this has been absolutely a fascinating and a great resource. I, if our listeners would like to um, access your material, your workbook, talk about yes. neuroengineering, uh, anything like that, how can we get in touch with you? Well, there are a couple of ways. You can go to my website which is Dr. D-R, Sonny, S-O-N-N-E-E, Whedon, W-E-E-D-N.com, DrSonnyWhedon.com. You can also call me. I'm at 415-328-6765. Mm. You can reach me by me email. I'm one of those ancient uh, AOL people. <laughs> <laughs> so much trouble to change it. Somebody the other day said, AOL, are you kidding me? I said, yeah, AOL, Sunny at AOL.com. Okay. You can reach me any of those ways, and I'd be happy to talk to any of your listeners who are interested. And it's been delightful yeah. talking to you. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for making the time in your, uh, your flight day uh, to come and join us for a little bit. Um, I hope that um, you get some feedback from our folks. Uh, we uh, are really grateful for your information and your time. It's been really, really helpful. Yeah, sure. what a great talk. Thank you so yeah. much for inviting me. I appreciated being with you this morning and your Absolutely. patience with me. I appreciated your patience. No, with me. not at all. Yeah. Okay. We're
Good. Yeah, we're very grateful. All right. Well, listeners, stick with us. We'll be back in just a moment here on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And Nate, uh, that was informational. (laughs) (laughs) Educational. Yeah, Yeah, it was. I loved uh, finding out so many different uh, terms and uh, approaches that I um, hadn't heard a lot about from Dr. Sonny Whedon. Yeah. Um, Neuroengineering for one, is an, a, a term that um, a lot of people may not be familiar with, but it sounds like has a lot of promise. Yeah, yeah. I'm intrigued. I'd want to investigate further. Yeah, and, I, and I love the fact that she began her career as a, as, as a, as a kindergarten and first grade teacher. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've got to believe that that gave her a fantastic foundation in working with adults because all of us, right? It's that, it's yeah. that inner child that's that you know, that really needs some instruction and correction and help and nurture. Oh, yeah. 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 She's, she's still working with children. She just <laughs> doesn't yeah. call them kindergartners. I was, I have to say my dark side um, was when she told us that she was uh, working with kindergartners and first graders. I thought I was waiting for that to be, and that's when you started drinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she, she didn't go there with that. I was, no, no, I no. was both impressed and kind of disappointed. I, I thought, yeah. well, dang, uh, what a missed opportunity. <laughs> well, what a charming and uh, intelligent, uh, you know, engaging, entertaining, and and highly articulate person she is. Yeah, I'm sure she's she's been a rock for an awful lot of people. Yeah. And uh, and let's go ahead and put a plug in for that workbook. It's available now on Amazon. Yeah, eight uh, ways to well being. Yeah, for recovering people. For recovering people, right? All right. Well, it's another conversation. Uh, in the books. It's, it's been great, David. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think maybe next time we actually are going to be able to be in the same room. I think we will be facing each other next time we talk. I hope so. <laughs> Until then, I'm Nate. I'm David. We're your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich. Uh, Hair and Makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, Wardrobe by (laughs) Kathy Gifford. 